What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. And we have another episode from this week of psychology and mental health. If you missed it, Monday and Tuesday, we dove into some evolutionary psychology. We talked with David Buss and then Randy Nessie. Well, today we're getting into the messiness around mental health. And my guest today is Lucy Fulks. All right, so check it out. So she wrote a book called Losing Our Minds. And I was like, okay, what, what is this? Is this just like, you know, some generic book about mental health? And oh my God, it was one of the, the best books I've read on this topic. I think I mentioned it yesterday in, uh, you know, my intro or outro with Randy Ness. I was like, two books, you can only read two books on mental health this year. Randy Nessie and then this book from Lucy Falk. So like they are, they're very important. This book from Lucy Falk. So she talks about, she, she dives into the nuances of it. We, we chat about it in this conversation and you'll see why, uh, why I titled this and why we talk about how it's messy, but it's like no other book I've read. Um, for those of you who haven't been around for a long time, I used to just strictly read mental health books, self-help books, and stuff like that. It was only recently in the last couple of years where I really started expanding into all these other topics. That's why we have such a variety of authors on here. But anyways, I've read so many books on mental health, and this was like none other because it really dives into the nuances. And, you know, uh, Lucy and I, we talk about it in this episode. Like, one of the reasons I started my channel over on YouTube was because I was like, we don't talk about mental health enough. Then I'm looking around, I'm like, oh crap, are we talking about mental health too much? So Lucy and I, we, we discussed that a little bit and we talk about, you know, different biological factors that, you know, can affect our mental health, uh, our environment, our childhood experiences. Uh, we discuss, you know, the major problem with not teaching young people about mental health in schools, but also how parents aren't educated about mental health. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, uh, you know, the best mental health advice my dad could give me was to walk it off. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, we, I, I didn't know anything about it. So I'm trying to, you know, uh, talk with my son about it. And Lucy and I, we chat about how we can talk to kids about this without freaking them out or making them think that the world's like a dangerous place, or they're going to spiral into depression. And Lucy has done so much research about around this, and you could tell she's really passionate about it. And she's actually, you know, working on more things to help uh, young people and, you know, to kind of change the way that we talk about mental health. But I, I really connected with her book, and I'm so glad that she wrote it and I was able to talk with her. And, and yeah, like, I, I hope you enjoy this episode. I really hope that you grab a copy of her book because, you know, no matter what, whether you can afford therapy or not, we talk about that. We talk about other options because here in the United States, a lot of people can't afford therapy or they don't have health care, all that kind of stuff. So we talk about alternatives and everything like that. But anyways, head down to the description below. Make sure you're following Lucy. Uh, I, I put her social media handles down there as well as a link to her book. We'll talk about this uh, in the episode, but her book is currently out in the UK uh, and it is coming to the United States. I believe she said in January, I was lucky enough to get an early copy. But anyways, listen to this episode, pre-order the book, Mark a calendar and all that stuff if you're here in the States. All right. But yeah, also down in the description below, make sure you are following me as well over on Instagram and Twitter. That way you don't miss any 
upcoming guests, any new episodes. And I love chatting with all of you when I, I talk about, you know, what books I'm reading and all of that. And if you're new here, another way, another fantastic, amazing way to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes is to make sure you are following the podcast or subscribed. All that stuff is really good. Helps out the podcast and it helps you so you don't miss anything. Because I've been cranking out episodes because I read so much and I love talking with authors about all these interesting topics. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucy Folks about her book, Losing Our Minds. Hello, Lucy. How are you doing today? I, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank, I'm so glad that we were able to connect. And you've seen me ranting and raving just in positive ways about your book on Twitter. So I'm so excited to talk to you. So can you tell those who have yet to check it out, what, what inspired you to sit down and write this book? Uh, well, I noticed that we're talking a lot about mental health and illness in society at the moment, you know, at school, at university, just in general conversations uh, on social media. And I started to wonder some of the message that messages that were being shared, whether they were true, whether it was actually yeah. accurate and whether it was helpful. And I often found myself thinking, no, you know, I don't think we're talking about it so much, but I'm not sure uh, we're talking about it in the right way. I think people are kind of more confused than ever. And so I yeah. wanted to write it to try and uh, set the record straight, to try and kind of map out what we do know and be honest about what we don't know, to to provide a bit of reassurance, I guess, and clarity. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons I, I loved it, uh, because I was kind of noticing the same things. But but also, real quick, uh, for those who haven't met you, uh, what, what's what's your background? Because you you know a little bit about this stuff and and all that. <laughs> what, yeah. What's your background in? Uh, well, so I have a sort of personal and professional um, background for this topic. So I had a history of um, depression and anxiety from, well, anxiety right from when I was a child. So I have a kind of personal expertise. And then I did a psychology um, undergrad and a PhD in mental health and then now work as an academic psychologist. Um, so I, yeah, I've sort of come at it from both angles, which was helpful for writing the book. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, and I, that's one thing I loved about the book is you shared some of your personal experience as well. Like, like for me, for example, my my anxiety is what led to my substance abuse, which turned into an addiction because I was trying to self medicate and and yeah, I think that's a good place to start with this discussion around what inspired your book. So, uh, like real quick, like about me, like what I noticed when I when I finally got sober in 2012. I wanted to educate myself. I'm like, what happened? Why am I different? What is going on? You know, I because it wasn't until I got sober that I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. I'm like, oh, here's mm -hmm. what it is. This mm -hmm. is helpful. Now I can work on it. But yeah. I looked back at my schooling and we never talked. We never talked about it. We never learned about it. So I'm like, we're not talking about this enough. So mm -hmm. you know, I was working at a at a, a drug and alcohol rehab center. I loved educating people with everything that I was learning. And I'm like, I'll start a YouTube channel because we don't talk about this enough. But then I started noticing, I think kind of what you noticed. I'm like, maybe, wait, are we not talking about it enough? Or are we talking about, about it way too much? 
So, so I think, I think your book has a great balance, but have you seen that kind of like, it's, it's a little bit of both, like depending on the community or, or what? I think with the sort of extent that we were talking about, the volume of conversations is good, but just the, it's the quality of the information Mm. isn't good. I think it's, it's far too shallow. There's a lot of sort of um, box ticking and virtue signaling um, with very little actually uh, detailed understanding of the problem. Um, but yeah, the, the same as you, I was thinking, God, we need to talk about this more. We need to talk about this more in schools and universities, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I never had these conversations when I was a teenager or a child. And then I'm thinking, hang on, but actually, are we in a better position now than we were? back then you know are you better off now as a 20 year old than you were mm. when I was 20 that was the information you get and in some respects I think yes but uh yeah my my concern was that yeah we sh- we've got a long way to go we're overshooting a little bit there's been some collateral damage um which I talk about in the book um yeah so I think it's about redressing the balance a bit yeah. it's not about stopping talking about it yeah, something something I've been getting into lately because I just love reading and learning about stuff. I've been getting into sociolinguistics, right? Like I'm just interested in like language. And something you touch on in the book is is kind of the the, the language and how often we use this. Like you you kind of go like uh, you know through different disorders and everything like that. But you know the way we talk about depression, anxiety, OCD. Like for example, I started noticing. Right. Like, oh, you know, someone's having a bad day. I'm depressed. Right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. are you depressed or are you having a bad day? Right. Like, did something bad happen and you're just feeling normal human emotions or, you Mm -hmm. know, people saying they're they're having anxiety or a panic attack, even though they're just a little bit nervous. Right. Or someone who's like, oh, yeah, I like to keep my desk organized. I'm so OCD. Right. And, you know, obviously, you, you, you know, you have a ton of experience. I've worked in mental health treatment. I'm like, no, like these are like you you do not know so how much do you like do you think so two questions do you think that the language is being overused is that part of the issue and how do you think that affects you know the stigma the conversation how people get help like like i guess the question is i'm always asking myself like am i overreacting does this even matter you know what i mean so yeah, i'm curious I think your it thoughts. does matter i think it matters a lot i think it's happened all things you describe because of this huge drive, all these campaigns, these well-intended campaigns to talk more about this problem. Um, So people are using these terms because they've been given them, right? We've we've said, you know, there's this thing called OCD, there's this thing called panic attacks, there's this thing called PTSD. So it's no no surprise people have absorbed this language. You know, this is the cultural framework that they have, you know, to, to when you're distressed, you kind of reach for a psychiatric label often now so this is kind of no one's fault it's because it's it's actually just a consequence of this big drive to talk more about it which is is broadly a good thing yeah um but it comes at a cost and i think it comes at a cost um for people firstly for people who maybe uh have more mild or transient problems i think it's unhelpful to use these labels because they're a kind of double-edged sword and they can be um, you know, scary and heavy to take on. Like I was talking to um, someone she's kind of in their her early 20s, maybe saying that her partner had social anxiety and that he was sort of worried that it was a, um, you know, he was finding it difficult to process the fact that he had this condition. And I was thinking, well, 
maybe he doesn't have a condition. You know, maybe what he's experiencing is, is actually just quite normal. Mm-hmm. So, that, so that's one kind of cost. And the other cost is for people who really are at the sharp end of the spectrum who really do have social anxiety disorder or OCD or whatever. The issue for them is then that these terms have lost meaning. You know, we need to reserve some language for the people who are seriously unwell so that those terms still carry uh, useful weight and meaning and power. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's so tricky because I do think that there are people, you know, there's just so many things like you touched on, uh, Jonathan Hyde and Greg Lukianoff's book in there, you know, and some of that stuff's like around like outrage culture and language. So I try, like, I feel weird when I'm like, Hey, don't overuse these words and stuff. But at the same time, it is a real issue. I, I was talking with somebody the other day, uh, just, you know, uh, a little bit of a debate and they, you know, they brought up a, a good point, which, you know, I agree with is that language changes and language evolves, but I think it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that because if not, we, we, we have to, we, it's hard to die. It's hard to address a problem if the diagnosis or, or what we're, we're talking about is costly changing, right? Like if all of a sudden my leg is called my arm and I, you know, I break my leg, they're not going to know what to fix. Right. So that's, that's kind of how I see mental illness. And when, you know, if I'm, if I'm with 50 people, well, it's triage too, right? Like if you're with 50 people and each one says that they're suicidal or each one has depression or each one is having a panic attack like how do you know if they're all saying the same thing it's like there's no there's no gauge so do you see that Mm -hmm. affecting like here's here's a great question for you lucy since you're the uk i as somebody who wants uh your type of healthcare system here in the united states do you think that that bogs down your system because all i hear is like hey they gotta wait forever you know, over in the UK to see like a mental health professional. Like, do you think that's a factor is how we overuse these terms? Uh, I, I think potentially it could be a problem. I think there's a mismatch between these campaigns telling, encouraging everyone to go and get help if they're in distress. And then that's not been met by enough resources. So even before there was this awareness you had to wait a long time to get an appointment and now which what i talk about in the book is as a potential problem is that we're we're funneling more and more people into a system that's already overwhelmed and so that's not to say that i think some people shouldn't turn up it's very difficult uh for me to make any sort of generalized point about who doesn't doesn't need um support from the nhs but broadly if you look across the whole population not everyone needs professional help yeah. So the problem is that we're telling everyone to get help and not matching that with help when you turn up. And that could potentially make things worse. You know, if, if you tell people to go and get help and then they turn up and they can't get it, you know, that's that's awful. That's only going to add to their distress. Yeah, it here. OK, all right, Lucy, we're going to we're going to try to figure out some some solutions here, because here's mm-hmm. here's something that I think about. Right. So as we were talking about, like I noticed, like, you know, uh, it feels like we never talked about mental health and, you know, I try to be open and honest and stuff. I want to normalize it. Like the other day, uh, my, uh, my doctor switched my antidepressant medic- medication. I'm just like, Oh, I'll talk about it. Right. You know, cause I just want it to be normal. That's it. Right. It's almost like if I took like cold medicine. Right. So I want it to be normal. But the thing is, there's part of this conversation is like, Hey, don't be afraid to ask for help. Right. So here's what I think, like with systems being bogged down and stuff like that, like even here in the United States, even with our, you know, our type of healthcare system, you might wait forever. Like if I, if I call to set an appointment with a psychiatrist today, 
it'd be a month. Like, so, so, so yeah. Right. So what do we do when the system's being bogged down, but we're also telling people like, Hey, this is nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. You know what I do? Do you, do you kind of see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like, where's I, that balance? I don't know what the solution is. I don't know <laughs> what the solution is other yeah. than um, properly fund the services. You know, the, the bigger issue isn't people turning up who shouldn't be there. It's there are so many people who are badly in need who are being turned away. You know, people who are kind of actively suicidal having to wait for help. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a mess. And it, so it frustrates me when you see these. Uh, social media campaigns saying all you need to do is you know reach out and get help and it's not it's not the reality yeah, yeah they don't they don't tell you the the additional part that's that's the same thing here in the united states just coming from like the addiction treatment background uh and so many people in the united states without health care i'd have people call me uh, you know, who lost their insurance. Cause a lot of people, what happens with drug use is they, they relapse, they lose their job, they lose their insurance. Right. And we have state funded facilities, but it's, it's months, well, right? Enough, it is, yeah. it is months. And that's a really difficult thing. So I help people it, navigate. It's a long time to wait. A week is a long time to wait if you're in oh. crisis. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, like you mentioned, like, uh, if someone's suicidal, um, with, with the amount of, uh, overdose deaths, like all that stuff, like it could be intense, but I I'm also wondering too. So let's, let's take this in a few steps. So the okay. first thing, like, I want to talk a little bit about education, like what we can all do individually, right? Mm-hmm. Like part of me educating myself, uh, is knowing when I need to ask for help, right. Where I can be like, okay, Maybe this isn't like a major issue. Maybe I'll just get through this. Mm-hmm. So let's start here for anybody out there listening. How do we define like mental illness? Are there certain signs? And I know each one's going to be different, but are there some general like things that we should look for? Like, hey, maybe this is at a point where we should start thinking about getting help. Well, I think it's useful to think about it to sort of recognize and a big part of the book was making the point that there's not like it's not like you don't have mental illness or you do. Yeah. These symptoms are all on a spectrum. And it's just that there are a few indicators that mean you will gradually be moving up to the more severe end. So the professionals, you know, it's not a binary thing. You do or you don't. The only reason that there is this defined thing called depression or PTSD is that professionals have kind of put the line in the sand and said, yeah. okay, this is the point where we're going to call it a disorder, even though actually if you fall just below that line, it doesn't mean you're not. Um, in need of help um so yeah there's no, there's no simple way of saying this is a disorder and this isn't but the kind of factors that would push you further up into the more disordered end are how long the symptoms have been going on for how severe they are how frequently you have them so is it kind of every day or is it you know you know once a week or something um how much distress do they cause you how much do they affect your ability to live the life that you want to live and how much can you control them? So in terms of things like, uh, you know, worry, for example, or um, hearing voices in your head, you know, people vary um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how much they control them, can control them. So all of these things, if you start having a sort of a more severe version of all of those things, you start moving further up um, the spectrum. But there is no, um, yeah, there's no sort of simple list I can give to say this is the point at which you need help you know you have to you know you know yourself or you know your child and if you're worried then definitely go and speak to someone but these are the kind of these are the kind of factors that professionals might take into account to decide whether it should kind of count as a disorder or a problem 
Yeah. So for me personally, and everybody listening, I'm not a licensed professional, but for me, like with my mental health and something I learned when I started taking care of it is like one of the main things I look for is like, is this affecting my life in a negative way, whether it's work relationships, like, am I, am I not showing up to work? Am I, can I not get out of bed? Right. Am I having panic attacks at work? Is it not going away? Uh, I used to struggle, like my anxiety would make me very, um, frustrated and irritable and annoyed. Right. And I'm a pretty like, Hey, you just met me. I'm a pretty happy, nice guy. Right. <laughs> but if I start getting, if I'm regularly irritated, you know, so if my personal relationships, if I'm snapping at my son, if I'm snapping at my girlfriend and friends and stuff like that, um, you know, these are little signs for me, like, Hey, this is affecting my life. This isn't my normal baseline. So I'm like, Hey, I'm going to set up an appointment or, you know, maybe my meds need to be adjusted because something else I've done, um, because my drug of choice was uh, prescription pills. So like, I just have a thing in me where I'm like, I, I don't want to be on medications, especially because there's side effects and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So when I get good, I always do this with a doctor. I'm like, Hey, what do you think about us going down? And she's like, yeah. So we do it with doctor supervision and stuff like that. But at the same time, I tell my girlfriend, I'm like, Hey, if I start acting a little weird, let me know. Cause I might not even notice it. You know what I mean? So those are, those are just things that I, I personally do, uh, to see if it's affecting me and like, okay, now it's getting to a point where I need to do something because I used to be the type of guy, uh, where I wanted to do it all on my own. So mm. do you, do you still, do you still see that as an issue too? Is that there's still an issue with not enough people asking for help too, and just kind of trying to go through this on alone, alone, because I, I imagine the UK is kind of similar with the individualism that we have here in the United States. Do you think some people just try to tough it out? Definitely. And I think it's, I think I, I talk about it's in the book, how we're in, there's a strange sort of paradox at the moment where in, in some respects, um, you know, too many people are sort of over-medicalizing or pathologizing mm. normal experiences, but at the same time, there are still plenty of people who badly need help and don't realize what's happening to them or are too scared um, to ask for it. So I think both of those things are happening at the same time. That's partly why this, you know, why this topic is so, um, so messy. I think I've definitely um, anecdotally feel very aware of uh, people's concern around taking medication in terms of wanting to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they feel like taking medication is kind of cheating. Like actually, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather work it out on my own. Um, I think that's still pretty pervasive. Um, while also at the same time, there's probably lots of people who are going too readily on medication when actually maybe they should be trying to, uh, you know, wait and see a little bit. So yeah, both both things happening at the same time. Yeah, and and real real quick, I'm just going to talk about how much I love the book again, real quick. Like, here's what I loved about the book, Lucy. And I, and, and I just, I hope other people notice this is, is that like with, with what you were just saying, like, that's like the entire book, like it's messy, right? <laughs> like, like you put it in there, like, so like, okay, Lucy. So I'm, I'm at like 260 books this year and so many books, they have this idea or this thesis and they just go one direction. Right. And they don't present counter arguments or anything. And that's why I loved your book because it shows both sides. Like, yeah, we overdiagnose and we underdiagnose. People are trying to get too much help, but there's also people who want. And like, I appreciate that honesty because unless we recognize that we can't really like look at it and sit back and say, am I overreacting or am I underreacting? And all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And, and 
you know, um, one of my other questions about this kind of, you know, when do we get help and stuff like that? I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts. Cause I always think that education is a huge aspect of this. My life has changed since I just sat down and wanted to learn about this. So do you think like, how important do you think education is for tackling some of these issues, just even on an individual level? Like, um, well, firstly, I'm glad that you picked up on that from the book about it being messy. Cause I remember very early conversation with my agent and as we were writing the proposal and he said, you know, well, how, how would you sum up the book in one, in a sentence? And I was like, <laughs> mental health is messy. And he was like, that's too vague. Like you need to try and refine it a little bit. But that was my, my whole point. It still is that that's my kind of conclusion basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ed- education. Are you talking about education in schools? Well, I guess let's let's start with schools. Let's start let's start down here, and then we'll talk a little bit about up here. So yeah, like kids. Like my son is twelve. He's in middle school here, right? And I've I've taken on the personal responsibility, right? So you know, schools are bogged down with you know they got to teach math and science and blah 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 blah. Like, so do you think schools could be doing a better job or? I'm I'm actually writing something at the moment, an academic thing about um, what we should be doing in schools, and specifically that we are we should be asking young people themselves what they want to hear in schools. Um, I think there's an awful lot of there's a huge interest in teaching mental health stuff in schools. Um, I think it's extremely well intended, um, but I think we haven't quite figured out what the best things to teach them are we need to strike a very difficult balance between we need to provide education information about mental health so people feel um you know empowered to understand themselves and to help themselves get better and to seek help when they need it etc we also need to balance that with not promoting this message of fragility and vulnerability and that you know every every corner that you turn in life is a sort of source of potential danger and harm and I think we haven't you know sometimes some of the school programs possibly uh towards that side a little bit so we need to be really really careful about what how do we teach them to be empowering and helpful without being you know kind of alarming I think yeah and uh I I think back because uh here in the states I don't know if uh, you you all have it over there too but like we I had health classes like in from a child, like it was like required health classes. Mm-hmm. And I think about it, like, you know, they talk about physical health and they would talk about different diseases when you'd become a teenager and they start talking about sexually transmitted diseases, but we talked about, you know, foods and healthy, but they talk about like things to look out for. And here's things like, here's signs that you might be unhealthy or getting overweight or not active enough and all that. And I just think I'm like, just do the same thing with mental health. Right. Like, like they encourage us, like we have uh, physical education here where they try to keep you active and you play sports and stuff like that. Well, what if we also emphasize the importance of support groups, the, the importance of, you know, meditation or journaling? Like there's so many things it feels like you could easily split that into a curriculum. Um, I mean, I don't know about the US, but it's definitely happening here. Um, there's been a huge drive to, to share those kind of messages. Really? Uh, definitely. Uh, there are specific programs like, you know, mindfulness programs for schools. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot, you know, there's all sorts of competing programs that you can kind of take off the shelf or there's lots of schools that are kind of making it up as they go along, but they are creating a, a mental health program. Yeah. 
the, the good side of that is that, you know, that's great. We can, we can teach people um, science. We can educate them about, for example, what OCD is in case, you know, their friend has it or whatever. Um, and we can help, you know, teach them that if, if you become overwhelmed, this is how you get extra help. That's mm-hmm. all really good. My only um, concern is that how you, how you sort of delicately convey that message without, like, how do you teach them about anxiety without them then concluding that every episode of anxiety is a problem? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do by chance do you have kids? No, no. So, so I got a son, and like, there's so many awkward conversations, right? Like, like, uh, you know, here's a good example: death. Right. When a kid has to learn about death and it's like, oh, God. Right. But I see the kind of a similar thing. And it's just like it feels like our responsibility as adults, like, hey, this thing exists, but don't be too freaked out about it. It's just (laughs) something that can happen. You know what I mean? And, you know, I've noticed, uh, you know, a lot of parents, they don't like having these uncomfortable conversations. I recently had another author out here, uh, Melinda Winter Moyer, about her book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Well, part of it is just having these conversations. Mm -hmm. But. So something else I think about, like staying on the topic of kids and starting them off early. Um, just for example, I grew up with an alcoholic mom. She's sober now, but she got sober when I was 20. There was a lot of damage done to me by the time, you know what I mean? And there are, you know, genetic components, you know, mental illness or addiction running in the family. But also uh, when I learned about, you know, the ACEs test, the adverse childhood experiences and just childhood trauma. and there's so many environmental factors, right? Like that can just mess up a kid, increase their likelihood for depression, anxiety. Like if you're in a household where it's constantly insane, Mm. your brain's going to be like, you need to be on high alert at all times Mm. because you never know what's going to happen. Anyways, anyways, what I'm getting at, Lucy, is aside from schools, how important is it that parents are educated about for lack of better words, about how we can screw our kids up. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't, do you have, are you working on anything to educate parents? And well, also, yeah, I mean, the, the screwing up thing, but also, <laughs> yeah, how do you have conversation with them about mental health? More generally, you know, how do you as a parent know whether your teenager is just being moody versus whether they're depressed? Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an interesting question to be asked about how much is this school's responsibility versus how much is this uh, parent's responsibility? I think, again, when it comes to parents, we've got to um, um, extremes that are happening and everything in between, one of which um, parents are um, don't want to admit that their child has a problem, can't recognise that their child has a problem, doesn't know what to do about it, hasn't heard of any of these things, it's burying them under the carpet, et cetera, et cetera. And then right at the other end, you have some parents who are so kind of keyed up um clued up on these mental health topics yeah. and conversations that they kind of panic as soon as their child's unhappy um which is like again it's totally understandable you know with feeding these messages to, to sort of look out for the signs and telling parents this is what depression is etc so i think both things are happening at the same time you know i think there's definitely parents who don't want to get help because they because of the stigma of it they're kind of in denial about the being problem um it's really difficult. I don't, again, I don't have a straightforward answer. Yeah. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, just work, working in, you know, this field and just being, you know, uh, you know, around, especially, you know, people trying to stay sober and stuff. I've, I've witnessed just 
you know, a ton of death, like overdoses and suicides and stuff. And I'm, you know, I keep up with the news and things like that. And something that I always hear is like, we didn't see it coming, right? We didn't see it coming and stuff like that. Um, but it always seems like there are people who did see it coming, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why parents don't recognize it because I feel like I've seen this a lot, right? Uh, I've seen this with friends, you know, because people know I'm in recovery. So they'll be like, hey, can you help so-and-so? I'm like, sure, I'll talk to somebody. And I notice how many parents are like, no, they're fine. They're fine, right? And I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. So friends here like, oh no, just drinking and using drugs. It's totally normal. Like, you know, all this stuff, but even depression and anxiety. So there's a few different factors where, and here's just my theories. Like one of the, one of the possibilities is a parent will feel if they admit their son or daughter is depressed or anxious or trauma or, you know, suffering from trauma or is self-harming or whatever, they think if I admit to that, then I am a bad parent, right? Mm -hmm. um, then there's also the other factor that you, you brought up, the stigma, right? If mm -hmm. I send my son to treatment, what is everybody going to think about me? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So... Huge. So I guess the question I have for you, if there are parents listening right now, like how do we talk to other parents about this who have these, these fears that it means they're a bad parent or other people might judge them? What should we do about that sort of issue? Well, I think it's important to note is that there's never one single factor that causes, um, you know, mental illness or mental health problem. Um, you know, these things can strike people who've had really happy childhoods with parents mm -hmm. who um, love them. It's it's never as straightforward as, um, you know, a parent did this one thing and it's caused it. I mean, like you say, it's a multitude of biological and environmental factors and parents can control some aspects of the environment for their child, but not all of them. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's never helpful to hone in on any one thing as, as the, the cause or the fault. Um, yeah, so I, I hope that's reassuring, I suppose, that it's, it's yeah, that sort of blame is often quite futile, actually. And when it happens to you, it's incredibly tempting to pick apart exactly what caused it and why it happened. And I imagine as, if it happens to a child, then parents will do that too. But in a way, it's, it's sort of pointless, actually. It's, it's more useful to think about, okay, well, it's happening right now. We've, we're, we've reached this point. Maybe it doesn't actually matter how we got here. Maybe what's more important is to tackle the problem now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, here, here's a quick little rant that I think I, I can only do with you. Uh, <laughs> in, in the recovery community, and, uh, you know, there's this debate around, like, the disease model of addiction, right? Yeah. And 12-step programs teach that and all that. And me, like, I'm, I'm really into the science and everything, but at the... At, at the foundation of it, I really don't care. And here's why. Because for me, it the idea of it taught me that I'm not a terrible person, right? I'm not a flawed, broken person. You know, maybe there's a genetic component. Maybe I'm wired differently. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I got sober in 12-step programs, even though I'm not as active with nine years sober. But they have a chapter where they relate it to an allergy, right? But that gave me some pieces like, oh, my God, okay, like something's just different about me. But then that expanded to my depression, my anxiety, like, hey, there's some things that are outside of my control. And when I try to educate people, that's what I try to teach them. It's like, hey, this might have nothing to do with you. Like, would you, would you feel embarrassed? Like, for example, let's use this as an example. Would a parent feel embarrassed if their child got diagnosed with any physical illness, like cancer, or if they caught 
I don't know, COVID or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, like we need to start looking at mental health at like physical health. That helps me not think of it as such a bad, like, or as a moral failing or, oh, my kid's depressed because I'm not doing something right. Mm -hmm. So that, so that's my rant. That's why I hate that debate around the, you know, is it a disease or is it, it's like, I was like, there's certain people, not everybody that it'll, it might help. Like it helped me noticing that it, it might've been something outside of my control. So I, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm curious. I'm curious your thought about that because there are debates even uh, just with regular disorders, like saying mm-hmm. this, this is a disorder. The, one of the arguments is like, you know, that it makes a person feel like they're helpless and they can't do anything or, you know, or, or maybe that they'll use it as an excuse, like, oh, I have this disorder, so I don't have to do anything. So do, do you think there's, a, there's anything with that, with the conversation around d- disorder versus like in your control? Yeah, I have a lot to say about that. I think Lay it's, it on me. it's quite, whether it's a, you know, biological problem or not. Um, I think people should have freedom to choose what, what framing they find most helpful you know if you find it helpful to think about it as a biological thing go for it you know if you'd rather think about it as something that's sort of environmentally determined then you can go for that as well because actually in reality it's probably probably will have been a bit of both Um, I think viewing them as biological diseases or illnesses is a sort of mixed um, yeah double-edged sword again like everything Uh, like what you say I think it's incredibly powerful in terms of thinking it's not your fault you know no one would blame themselves for getting cancer or, or type one diabetes. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's something that's in your makeup and it just, it happened. It's not your fault. The cost to some of the biological explanations, I think is that um, it's not just me thinking it's actually people have found this is that it can make people think it's harder to fix. Yeah. It's more like, okay, well it's, it's a part of me that I cannot help. Therefore I'm going to have it forever. Yeah. Um, But I think it can be useful in terms of reducing self-stigma for understanding why you got it, why you have it, but it can be problematic in terms of um, getting better because it can be like, okay, well, there's something wrong with my brain and that's it kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, basically people should have to, you know, there's so many different ways of explaining and understanding this. You've got to find the way that works for you for understanding your own experience of it, I think. Yeah. Here's here's what helps me not feel helpless or hopeless. Like I think of, you know, my my addiction or mental illness or whatever, like cancer, right? Like it goes into remission. If I'm treating it, if I'm doing the right things, or even weight loss, right? I've been, you know, losing weight this this year, going on walks. I got my little Apple Watch and all that. If I'm taking care of it, I do have some control over it. So that's, yeah. you know, that's what helps me. But you know what I love, Lucy? Here's my yeah. favorite thing as we're talking about all this. Yeah. The biopsychosocial model, right? Yeah. Like when I when I look at that, I I it's like this little checklist. I'm like, oh, is it partially, is it my biology? Is it my psychology? Is it social? Is it all three? Is it a combination? Right. Because a lot of this, like, for example, if we're looking at depression and anxiety or even even trauma, right? Like, okay, let's let's eliminate the biological factors. But like, is there anything going on in your life right now? Are you in an abusive relationship? Are you having difficulties at work? Are you unemployed? Because that might make you pretty anxious and depressed. You know what I mean? Is it the people that you're hanging out with? All these things. So like, if we kind of, you know, as we've been discussing, if you don't just try to 
hone in on just one thing. Like it's not all biology. It's not all hmm. your environment. So is, is that, is that something that you think might help if we educate people about, Hey, here's like kind of the three main categories yeah. or are there more categories that I don't even know about or. Yeah. And, and that you don't have to search for a single explanation because it can, it can be multiple things at once. Mm -hmm. I think there's still this kind of slightly strange biological versus environment fight yeah. when actually, you know, everything, all the evidence points to the fact that it's, it's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think another downside of the biological sort of interpretation is that it sort of situates the, the problem totally within the individual and also therefore the solution when actually, mm. <clears throat> Like I said in the book, so much of um, what we call mental illness arises because people have really stressful lives. You know, they're unemployed or they're in an abusive relationship or they've been brought up in an unstable home, um, blah, blah, blah. There's a million things. So I think if, if you view it as just being, there's something wrong with my brain, then it sort of lets everything else off the hook in a way, when actually there might be something really legitimate in your environment. Like, of course you're unhappy if, you, you know, if you have... A whole string of difficulties in your life. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I also want to talk about, uh, okay, let's talk about like high school slash college kids. Right. Yeah. So I love the section when you brought up the coddling of the American mind. So for those who aren't aware, can you, can you kind of break down what you, you've touched on it a little bit in this conversation, but the idea of what safetyism is, what, what might that look like? Like you're educating teachers and, and stuff like that, like with some work that you're doing. So what does that look like? What's safetyism? Why is it a problem and all that for people? Well, who don't it's, know? it's their, um, their word, um, from coddling of the American mind and their, uh, argument that we've become sort of obsessed and it, it's very much focused in the US, but I think we see it in the UK as well. We've become sort of obsessed with safety as the number one priority for children and young people and not just physical safety, but emotional, you know, in inverted commas, emotional, psychological safety too. The idea that this our sort of paramount goal when raising children is to protect them from all kinds of harm, including emotional harm. Um, and even though that, even though that's the kind of understandable drive as a parent and sort of on the surface mm -hmm. sense, it's potentially setting up problems later on because you, you need to have some exposure to risk and problems to learn how to deal with them. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm telling you as a parent, it is bonkers. I fight, <laughs> I fight it on a daily basis. Like my son is one of the most, and I, I bet all the parents say this, but I am being honest. My son <laughs> is one of the kindest, most responsible kids ever, but I freak out. Like if he's like, uh, you know, he tries to stay physically active, especially like when they were doing like school at home and stuff and just him walking around like the block or whatever, mm. I'm losing my mind. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Here, here's a fun thing, Lucy. Here's something that only my girlfriend and my son know. I have him turn on my his little find my phone app. So I can... <laughs> Big and he's like a bigger kid and stuff like that but i think back and you know they talk about this uh in the coddling of the american mind and there's also like free range kids and stuff like that like yeah. i look back at, at my childhood growing up in the 90s and stuff and we, uh, there was no cell phones my dad i would just be like hey i'm gonna go play with my friends for a while he'd have no way of getting a hold of me no way you know and so so anyways what i'm getting at is personally as a parent yeah i get it like and i fight that urge and, you know, none of us want to see our kids suffer or struggle or whatever, but I always, 
I always try to remind myself that it's only going to make him stronger, right? Like it's only going to make him more resilient because, you know, resilience is a huge thing for me. Like I look back and one of the reasons I, I kind of get through life now is because my life used to be a lot worse, right? So when, when trivial things happen now, like when I see people freaking out over like, I'm like, this is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to let my son struggle to a certain extent and you know, there's a, there's a balance we have to find, but, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, how that's become like a, a, a thing. So, uh, with, with a few more questions, I want to, I want to talk about like some of the various solutions, right? So when it comes to like counteracting, you know, like safetyism, but also decreasing stigma and all that, how important is like, is therapy like if if someone has the option right should they find a therapist and if so what are some things that they should look for if i if a friend came up to you and said lucy i want a therapist what should i look for mm-hmm. which they often do because it's really hard to to know what the hell you're supposed to look for so <laughs> many times to try and find people therapists um i'm quite yeah as i say in the book i'm a big advocate of um, ad, of therapy i think if you get the right person it's just amazing and i think we maybe should slightly divorce it from the idea of illness and disorder because actually if you have quite a specific problem that you're having difficulties with, it's incredibly helpful to go and see a therapist just to talk it through with with someone who's sort of professionally trained to help you explore a problem in a way that no one in your personal life can. People jump in with their own experiences, they talk over you, they try and just reassure you. They don't give you the space to actually, or they know you, they know too much about you know, the power of a therapist is that they are, they, they professionally care a lot, but they're totally detached from your life and it's all about you. You know, there's no other social interaction where you can so freely just be totally selfish in, in, in terms of kind of understanding yourself. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a shame that so many people who would benefit from it cannot access it because okay. of, you know, financial um limitations uh yeah i've i've been incredibly lucky to have had it and it, it shouldn't really be like that it should be yeah. like that actually if you, you should be able to get it yeah so i i wish i could just freeze that like what you just said like we need to separate therapy from like the disorder right like if if tomorrow i came across like a magical genie lamp and i had three wishes first one would be everybody gets a therapist every <laughs> single person right because for me personally just the way i kind of I, what's helped me also kind of look at mental health and uh you know my own and all that is i try not to look at the disorder right i try to look at the symptoms right no. because for example if i'm talking about my depression my depression might be uh you know really bad negative self-talk that day, right? But it, another day, it might be a lack of motivation, right? So I try to be mindful and say, okay, what what symptoms am I experiencing? So I could focus on the symptom rather than the broad disorder because, you know, even like depression, anxiety has like, fit, not, not 50, mm-hmm. has like, you know, quite a few things. Yeah. But if I yeah. focus on the exact symptom, but like you said too, like the power of a therapist, like just talking with them and, and a lot of people are like, oh, I'll just talk to my friends. But like you mentioned, they know you. I, I recently read some books where the author has talked about that and how the people they turn to in their life, they'll minimize their experience and stuff. It's like, yeah, so what better way than finding a stranger who has gone to school for this yeah. to give you an objective point of view? Yeah. Because when I'm when I'm with my therapist, I know that they're they're gonna be like, they can say, is it possible? 
that you're overreacting to this, that you're making this bigger than it is, or, you know, but they also come from a place of empathy and understanding. And like my, my girlfriend, for example, she's currently in her master's program for social work and all that. So, um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I just, I really want people to know the value of therapy, but you talk about, you, you talk a, a bit about therapy in the book, but if you had to pick two, two of the best forms of therapy, like I've, okay, I found a therapist, I'm getting a therapist. They're going to get me in. I could set up an appointment. I have five different options. They specialize in different things. What are your favorite forms of therapy that you think are the most beneficial for a wide range of things? Um, I do think CBT has a lot of potential benefit in terms of, well, two reasons, the C and the B. So the C, the cognitive bit, I think is incredibly helpful to be taught how to think something through in a more helpful way. So, um, you know, if you're anxious about something, what are the, instead of just going around and around your head worrying about it, you know, what are some sort of concrete things you can ask yourself and think about to try and break down that worry? I think that's very powerful. And then the B bit of it is also really helpful. There's interesting stuff about behavioral activation, um, which is basically just the B bit of CBT being yeah. as effective for depression as CBT. And that's basically the, the B bit is the idea of testing out different behavior, setting up behavioral experiments. You know, so if you're anxious about something, testing out doing the thing that scares you. If you're depressed, what can you set up in your life to sort of force you to interact with the world, even when you're not really in the mood to? Mm -hmm. So I think those two things are both really powerful. I also think CBT has its limitations. I think one thing I found really difficult about it is it's really, really hard to change the way you think, mm -hmm. to change the way you behave. And when you're having CBT, if you're unwell, you're trying to do it when you're unwell. I mean, it's really difficult anyway. So I think that's the the limitation of CBT. Sometimes you're just too, you know, sort of by definition, you know, you, you can't, you can't do it because you're depressed. Um, so I also think there's value in um, more kind of mindfulness slash kind of acceptance commitment therapy based mm. approaches, which is kind of totally opposite. And it's more about saying, actually, this is what's happening right now. Okay. So you're worried about something just, you know, to, this is a great simplification, but basically just accept that you're worried right now. Mm -hmm. um, what can you do to look after yourself? What can you do to uh, distract yourself or just sort of become more aware of the present moment, it, which is really totally opposite to CBT approach of catch that thought and analyze it and break it down and change it. So I think they're both quite useful because sometimes it's just too difficult to do CBT stuff and it's useful to move more into the um, act stuff, I think. Yeah. And, and Lucy, let me, let me tell you. So I was, I was sober and, you know, working on my mental health for like two or three years. And I, you know, I've, I've talked about this on my YouTube channel plenty. I think I even wrote about it in my book, but I discovered mindfulness and it mm -hmm. saved my ass. Like I just went full in. I wanted to learn everything about mindfulness, everything about Buddhist philosophy, but just, you know, learning how to not resist what I'm feeling and just accept it. Like it is so empowering and nice. Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's easier some days than others, but just training myself to be like, Hey, uh, uh, accepting this, like this is happening. Right. You know, and knowing that it's going to pass and everything. And, 
And yeah, so, okay, so Jeannie, first one would be everybody has therapy. Second one, everybody has to practice mindfulness. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I can't express it because I was, you know, medications um, helped me too. And and I, I found more solace in the mindfulness. Yeah. Um, well, also, yeah, I think there's great value in medication. And often it's a case of doing a bit of both. You know, I think medication can put you in the, mm-hmm. in the sort of mindset that will enable you to enact the... The therapeutic exercises so i think they go work very well as a as a partnership yeah so i i don't i i don't want to keep you too much longer but real quick question about medications mm-hmm. one of the concerns i have is is over medication um i don't know if it's as big of a problem in the uk but here there's sometimes where they'll just throw pills at you to get you out of the office right mm-hmm. so as as somebody visiting if i'm going to you know a, a, a psychiatrist like what what should i be mindful of like should people educate themselves so they weigh the pros and cons like you know, because we have to trust our doctors, but at the same time, we also have to do our own, like, kind of due diligence. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I think my, yeah, find a person that you trust who can answer the, your questions. You know, I think often yeah. in the UK, your first step is going to a GP, um, you know, kind of family doctor. Some of them are rubbish with mental health stuff and some of them are brilliant. So I think if, yeah. you, if you go to them and you feel that they're not, they don't understand or they don't have the time to explain things and go to a different one. Definitely. That's something that I recommend. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing I often think is to, to don't dismiss medication out of hand because you think it means you've, you've failed or, you know, it, it, it saddens me when people yeah. won't consider it as, as an option. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, beyond that, I can't, can't really say any sort of other useful general advice other than yeah to find a, a medical professional that you trust you can talk talk through it because it's certainly not for everyone there are side effects um you know mm-hmm. some people do go on them too readily um but yeah just something that i would say to to my friends i have said to my friends is that um yeah at least at least bear it in mind don't dismiss it because you think it means you've you're not mm-hmm. handling it anymore or you failed yeah yeah i i always encourage people you know like uh ask people if they know somebody if there's a doctor they trust or a psychiatrist that they trust or you know whatever but also like you mentioned with the medication um you know i i I try to tell people like hey one medication might do nothing for you it might suck it might give you weird side effects give it a little bit of time talk to your doctor work with your doctor it's like this teamwork type thing same thing with therapy if if this therapy isn't working let's try another one you know what i mean it's it's this relationship and it's like a a team effort but last and final question lucy somebody comes up to you uh they're from the united states so they don't have any health insurance or maybe they're in the uk and they can't get into a therapist (laughs) or doctor or whoever forever like I, I've, and I ask this because I've met so many people who are just like, I have no money. I don't have any resources or whatever. I'm just stuck this way. So mm-hmm. like, like if somebody has no resources, do you think like, for example, self-help books or workbooks or, you know, are there things that a person can do on their own if they have no other outside options and their situation isn't ideal? Um, I think definitely books if they have the, um, if they're in the frame of mind where they can read and absorb information like that. Um, so there's one I read recently, which is based on ACT principles. It's called The Happiness Trap. Mm. Um, exactly what you talk about in terms of, you know, not trying to fight negative emotions and just sort of uh, work with them as they are for the moment. Um, that is one, a recent one that I would recommend. Um, I also am a big um, 
believer in the power of uh, looking after your body and how mm. changing your bodily state can affect your state of mind. So in terms of um, exercise, sleep and diet. So I'm often amazed by how doing some exercise can change the way I feel. And actually it's, it feels like a good shortcut. Like I don't have to sit down and try and do a CBT exercise or something, just exercise. And then you don't, the thought, you know, the mood state isn't there afterwards anyway. Yeah. So you, I think often it's easier to sort of physically move yourself um, than to try and sort of fight it intellectually. But I caveat that with the fact that some people are too unwell for exercise to be helpful. Um, and it's, but you know, if you have an eating disorder or something, then exercise yeah. could be part of the problem. So it's, mm. it's, it's oversimplification to suggest that everyone just needs to exercise. But I think it's a, I wish I had discovered it sooner as a, as a tool, basically, to, um, as a kind of first try when I'm going through something difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, reading books taught me because I was like, oh, going outside, is that really going to help my depression, my anxiety? Then I learned about the science behind it. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> right? You know, it's eating better going to, because like when I go on my morning walks, it's like outside and in nature, even though it's hot as hell in Las Vegas. But, but yeah, listen, thank you so much for your time. I love your book, Third Wish. I don't know why I got on this genie kick, but Third Wish, everybody gets your book. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so can you tell everybody two things? Where can they get the book? Because I know the release dates were a little different in the UK and the US. So yeah. where can people get the book? And where can people find you for all the cool stuff that you're doing? Where are you most active? Uh, so the book is called Losing Our Minds. It's only been released in the UK so far. Uh, so you can get it from UK book outlets at the moment. But it's coming out in the US in January. Um, it's also available on the UK Audible website. Again, it will come out in the US next year. Um, I'm most active on Twitter by far. Um, also, you know, my email address is pretty readily available. Um, but in terms of, I've, I'm also on Instagram now, dabbling in that. Ooh, uh, but, okay. but Twitter is definitely my, um, yeah, where I waste far too much time. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, I will link all that stuff down below. I didn't realize you were on Instagram. So after okay. we hang up, I'll go, I'll go follow you over there. All right. But Me yeah, too. Lucy, I appreciate it so much. And we'll, we'll definitely do this again. Great. Thanks so much for your interest. All right, everybody. That was my conversation with Lucy folks about her new book, Losing Our Minds. And I, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed uh, talking with Lucy about it. And, and yeah, I, I hope that you realize, you know, if, if you did it before that, you know, this is kind of a, a messy situation and every single person is different. Every situation is different. And we need to look at this in, in the right way and understand, uh, you know, the differences from person to person. So not only can we help ourselves, but so we can help the people around us. And, you know, one of the most important things, like we talked about towards the end there was you know, don't, don't give up. Don't give up on this stuff. Like I, I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many things I tried at one point in my life that didn't work. Right. And later on I tried it again and it was life-changing, you know, um, 
I, I forgot where I heard the analogy, but you know, these different years in our lives or even different months in our lives, they're like a different chapter in our story. And yeah, I know it sounds a little cheesy, but it helps me. All right. It helps me understand this. Like it's a different chapter and we're, we're, we've grown, we've changed. And, you know, even just on a biological level, you know, maybe we're a little bit more balanced out and all that, but yeah, don't give up on, on trying to work on this stuff because Different therapies work for different people. Different medications work for different people. Um, you know, different practices like uh, Lucy and I, we were talking about, like, it was so important that I educated myself about this because now I know that there's scientific evidence around going for walks, talking with people, you know, rather than isolating and keeping it all in. Like, education is a huge part of this. So, yeah, Lucy's book is absolutely amazing. And yeah, it's out in the UK now. It's coming to the United States. Head down to the description. Make sure you are following Lucy. Grab a copy of the book if you're in the UK. If not, mark your calendar. Make sure you're following her. Uh, make sure you're following me as well. I'm sure I'll be, you know, uh, tweeting about it as the second it hits the United States because I'm not even kidding that I think this is one of the most important mental health books I've ever read. So yeah. Head down to the description, make sure you're uh, following and grab a copy of the book if you can. And my social media links are down there too. Uh, it's easy. It's at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. That way we can chat. You don't miss any upcoming episodes. You can see what books I'm currently reading. And yeah, I am working on quite a few projects and stuff. So you definitely don't want to miss those. So make sure you're following over on social media. And uh, for anybody out there who would love to support the podcast without spending a single penny, uh, a few things that you could do that really help out is, first off, make sure you're following the podcast or subscribed. All right. Next, if you could take two seconds, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Like, even if you're listening on Spotify, head over to Apple Podcasts, you know, whatever, right? And leave a rating and leave a review. Okay. Do that. Takes two seconds really helps the podcast out. Last thing you could do, last thing you could do, and I think this is the perfect week to do this strategy. Last thing that you can do is share the episodes of the podcast, right? Like if you were listening to this, you're like, dang, I learned some stuff or dang, I think, I think some people I know would benefit from this. Share it out there, share it out there on social media, whatever it is, all those things, like especially sharing it, it, it helps the podcast grow and we can build this community so more people can get involved in these important conversations and learn about all the different topics we cover here with all the different authors and all that sharing and following and all that. It tells the algorithms like, this is a pretty dope podcast. We'll, we'll push it out to some more people. All right, but some other things that you could do to help support the podcast. Uh, down in the description, there's a link to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published uh, a few books specifically around mental health and addiction recovery. If you want to grab a copy of any of those, you could also become a patron that's linked down below. And, uh, Lucy and I were talking about therapy. So down in the description below, there is an affiliate link for better help online therapy. And yeah, kind of like Lucy and I talked about, um, therapy can be expensive, a lot of people don't have insurance, all that stuff. Well, BetterHelp is a service that I've personally used. It's affordable. You do it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist. Uh, uh, they even have a sliding scale too. So they'll work with you on the pricing and stuff like that. So if you are somebody who's been interested in therapy, like just, just check it out. I think, don't quote me on this. I think 
they do offer some sort of free trial too. If you just want to, if you just want to dip your toe in, but go over there, check it out. You fill out your information. You talk like in the little questionnaire, you discuss exactly what you're struggling with. You can like kind of refine your details to find uh, the right therapist. One, for example, someone who specializes in trauma or somebody who specializes in depression or anxiety. They, you even have uh, options for, you know, therapists who are, you know, uh, secular or some that are like Christian leaning. Like it, you, it, it's like a dating site. You find the right match for you. And if you have a session and you don't like them, boop, click of a button, new therapist. But yeah, it, it really helped me during a hard time. So uh, this is this is a uh, uh, an app that I really, really vouch for. So check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. But yeah, another huge thanks to Lucy Folks for coming on the podcast. I, I, I hope, I hope that this book gets the attention that it deserves. But yeah, uh, stay tuned because tomorrow, tomorrow we have another episode and we're getting back into the realm of psychology. And I would argue this is very mental health uh, <laughs> focus as well. But we're talking about a brand new book that just came out this week that's kind of about group psychology and our identity and how that changes. And we cover a lot of different topics and biases and in-group versus out-group and so many cool things it is a great 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 new book so make sure that you stay tuned all right but anyways i'm gonna let you go i'm gonna let you get back to what you're doing have an amazing rest of your day and i'll see you next time